Well, there are two, I guess, extremes and everything in between when it comes to Bible prophecy. There are those that uh, sensationalize it and overemphasize it and probably abuse the whole area of what the Bible teaches concerning future things. And then there's the other extreme. People are afraid of it. People don't want to talk about it, so they totally avoid it. But I think both are extremes that need to be avoided. And partly because Scripture is full of prophetic writings. In fact, there's a lot of prophecy throughout Scripture. In fact, let me ask you a question just by way of introduction. The Bible uses a variety of ways to communicate. In other words, different kinds of literature or different genres is another way of uh, describing it. Can somebody tell me what is the most common genre of all the Bible? Storytelling. Storytelling or another word for that? Narrative. Narrative, Narrative material. That's the most common. About 40% of the Bible is narr- is written in narrative. So there's an overarching big picture in terms of Bible history, you might say. And when we speak of narrative, narrative is a broad term. In the secular world, it can include novels, which are not true. But when we speak of narrative and scripture, we always emphasize historical narrative. About 40%. What's the second most common genre of scripture? Anyone want to venture a... Poetry, very good. You must have taken my hermeneutics class. <laughs> Poetry is very prominent. That's totally different genre or different way of communicating. Poetic literature is very, very common. And what's the third? Prophetic writings. Very good. Yes. The third is prophetic writings. And when the writings were penned, 26 point, can't remember, 3 percent of all of scripture was prophetic when it was written. So there's a large quantity of prophetic material. God has revealed basically world history before it took place. Now we've seen a lot of fulfilled prophecy. In other words, a lot of uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis early on that have already found their fulfillment, but they're still the end part of world history that has not yet been fulfilled. And the scriptures, all the way, going all the way back to Genesis 3, speak of what God is yet to complete. Some of the things he started, he's still working, and still uh, dealing with mankind, and he's going to bring everything to completion. So when we speak of narrative material, we're talking about a big picture of world history from eternity to eternity. And there's a story. There's a plan. Some of that plan has not come about yet, and prophetic material deals with that prophetic portion of world history. And that's what we're looking at in uh, the Olivet Discourse. So it's very important, not only because it's one of the most prominent or most uh, prevalent, prevalent? I'm an engineer, remember, so (laughs) whatever. That's right. So it's very common, it's another easy word, in Scripture, and that makes it important in and of itself. And secondly, Jesus, the longest answer that he gives to any question that, he, that he's asked in the first century is the Olivet Discourse. 
It's an answer to the question of the disciples. And it's predominantly prophetic. So this is an important area. So we're looking at it, and we're looking at it somewhat from uh, trying to understand the time frame in which you and I live. So understanding the times is the way we've titled this, this series. We've looked at a long introduction to the setting to the Olivet Discourse, going all the way back to chapter 21, and running through the first part of chapter 24, and we're in a period that is described as tribulation, a period of tribulation. Now, I've been making the point that this portion that Jesus is dealing with in the Olivet Discourse, verses 4 through 28, is a very specific time in the future. And the reason I make that stress is because a lot of people take what Jesus is saying and use it and try to attach fulfillment in the church age. I think it's beyond the church age. Now, we can apply these passages just like we can apply any portion of Scripture, but I think the actual fulfillment take place in this period of time. And I'm going to give you more evidence for that today, and I'm going to give you some other views as well. In other words, different approaches to this period of time called the tribulation. So we're looking at verses 4 through 14, at least more specifically. Last time we completed verse 8. All these things that he's already talked about, he's talking about these birth pangs, these are just the beginning. And what he's going to talk about in uh, verse 9 is more of them. That's why I've titled your outline more birth pains. And I think they go all the way, as I've said, to verse 14 in the uh, chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. So he says all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. And if you study the book of Revelation or Old Testament parallel passages that deal with the same time, you realize that as you progress through this seven-year period of time, it is the most horrendous period of time ever in world history. Jesus says that, and so do other passages as well. This is just the beginning, the wars and rumors of wars and the things that we'll talk about in the next few passages. So we've kind of titled it, Birth Pangs. They will increase in frequency and in intensity as we progress through the uh, the period of time called tribulation. And Jesus is using the analogy, much like Paul does, of birth pains. So that's what we're looking at. It deals with a specific period of time that is divided into two parts. Seven-year period of time divided into two parts. Jesus, I think, is talking about the same week of years that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 9, it's the last week of Israel's history. There's one week of history that is yet future, that has not yet been fulfilled, and it's called tribulation. The first part I've titled, based on verse 8, the beginning of birth pangs. And we'll give another title of the second part when we get there. So we're looking at the beginning of birth pangs, 4 through 14. We looked at one of the birth pangs is false Christs that will arise during this period of time. False messiahs. False ways of salvation. Now, there's plenty of those today. In other words, the most prominent 
false way is a way of works. In fact, that's probably a broad description of just about every false descriptive way of uh, describing a way to God. It's not by works. Simply by trusting what he has done already and accepting that. So there's going to be a lot of false Christs during that time. We completed last time that there's going to be some destruction of various disasters. We saw wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, empires against empires. We also saw earthquakes. They're going to be very prominent during this period of time. Famines. And that brings us to the third, which we'll look at today, verse 9. A deliverance to persecution of believers. Now, you might say, well, if you believe in a rapture, then how does this fit? And this is one of the problems, this is one of the reasons that some people see the rapture not at the beginning of this seven-year period of time, but at different phases at different times during this period of time. Because of what we have, not only in verse 9, but there's other passages as, as well. So we need to talk about that and clarify why people take a different view of that. I think clearly, if you notice the end of verse 9, in fact, notice the set. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. In other words, these are people that are standing up claiming to be believers in Jesus Christ. My name, Jesus is the one that is speaking here. So these are clearly believers. This is clearly a period of persecution. Very intense persecution. Now, I'm going to give you some detail on who's involved and where these believers come from and all that. But I want you to notice the little word then. Every word in scripture is important. And sometimes more important, some are more important than others. In this case, the little word then, don't miss it. That word is extremely common in Matthew's gospel. In fact, in Matthew's gospel... The word is used over 90 times in Matthew's Gospel alone, out of 159 in the total New Testament. So all of the rest of the New Testament, less than just Matthew by itself. In other words, the occurrences outside of Matthew. So this is a very important word in Matthew's vocabulary. Can somebody tell me what is a very similar type of word in uh, Mark's Gospel, that occurs very frequently, more so than anywhere else. Anyone remember Mark's Gospel? That's it. You got it. Connie's got it. The word immediately. Bible scholar back there. Yeah, counted. I can't remember how many, but several. I think, I don't know, 40, 50 times. And because the Gospel of Matthew is an action gospel, And you see Jesus. In fact, if you read, if you sit down and read through the Gospel of Matthew, by the end you should be tired. Because immediately he goes and does this. Immediately he's healing on the Sabbath. Immediately this. And then immediately he proceeds somewhere else. Well, similarly in Matthew, he uses the word tote, which is a Greek word, then, very frequent. Now, the common meaning, or most of the time, it just means at that time. In other words... What he's referring to when he uses that word at this in this time frame, in this sequence of events, at this time, 
And I think in this context, he's referring right back to what he's just talking about, the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, this is the same time as verses 4 through 8. Now, I stress this because some Bible teachers overlook this little word and divide verses 4, 4 through 8, and 9 through 14, and see fulfillments up to about verse 8. Now, there's a variety of views, but one view is they see verses 4 through 8 as being fulfilled in the church age. And I've already made the point that I think the church age is not in view at all. The seven years deals with Israel. That's why the rapture takes place ahead of time, because the church is not involved. All right? But there are some that see a difference there. So there's no difference between 24, 4 through 8, and 9 through the rest of the Olivet Discourse. Still the same time. Then, at that same time. Now, it doesn't have same in there, but that's the point that I think we're making. And it's part of the beginning of birth pangs. Part of that time frame. During this specific seven-year period that Daniel lays out. And that period of time is described in a lot of detail, in a lot of passages in the Old Testament. The bulk of the book of Revelation, from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 18. So 15 chapters out of 22 deal with Daniel's 70th week. So it's very specific, very important, and it is within the Jewish prophetic calendar that God has set up. So, when we get to verse 9, then they will deliver you, and remember we've already talked about the you here, the you is not just the disciples, it has application to them. But this is like the prophets of Isaiah, the prophet of Jeremiah, when he speaks prophetically, very often he's speaking to that generation he's speaking to, and he uses the you, but much of what he talks about is not limited to the time frame in which he is living. Many of those prophets speak of a generation of Jewish people often that is far in the future, and in some cases even future from our time. And I think this is the way we take the Olivet Discourse, because he's describing a period that is yet future, even from the 21st century. They will deliver you, and when he's speaking to the disciples, he's looking at them more generically, or more representatively, as a generation of Jewish people that will also be living in a future time when they will experience this tribulation. Does that make sense? A question for you. Would that be Messianic Jews who have come to believe in Christ? No. Or would that be the Jewish people as a nation? No. Every believer in the church age, whether Jewish or not, will be taken up in the rapture. All right? So let's talk about who that generation of believers, who they are and where do they come from. Look at the little word. They will deliver you. First of all, let's look at the parts. They will deliver you. The they, it's not real clear, but as we read through and we look at the parallel passages, we can identify the they, and we can also identify that future you. 
a future group of believers. But let's look at the word delivered there. The word paradidomi is the Greek word for those of you that know a little bit of Greek. It means to, it can be translated to betray. That's the idea. And in fact, it's translated in that way in some of the parallel passages to betray. And if you want an example of it, uh, there are several examples, but in uh, Matthew 10, 4, Jesus refers to Judas as the one that would eventually betray him. And the verb form is used there. There are several other passages. It also has just a general, in some context, just a general idea of delivering something in general. We could use paradidomai to refer to mail. The mailman delivered the package. In the first century, it talks about delivering decrees. In other words, presenting or giving over to people what God has revealed in terms of decrees. So it can have a general usage. In this context, it probably used in a third sense, and a more technical and more specific sense, to hand over to authorities. And in fact, in the New Testament, the more common usages, in fact, let's look these up, and I'll have some of you read them, if you can, in the dark there. The idea, in some cases, to hand over, in terms of an arrest, and it's used very commonly of the Lord Jesus Christ being handed over to the Jewish authorities. And let's look up these passages referring to Jesus. These are all in Matthew, who wants to do 20... Okay, you got 20, 18, 27, 2, you got it, Jenny? And why don't you read 18 as well? You got that one, Jim? 20, 18, Matthew's Gospel. Oh, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to these priests and scribes, and they will commit him to death. Okay, that's Jesus predicting his own arrest. Being delivered up, paradidomi. That's the word there, same word. So it can be used in that sense of being delivered for execution in this case. 27.2, Jenny, that's also Jesus. Delivered him to Pilate. Arrested him, delivered him to Pilate in order to stand trial before Pilate. Read verse 18. They had handed him over because of envy. In other words... It's a betrayal, it's a delivering, it's a handing over, it's an arrest. So it has that kind of legal sense as well. And of believers in general, it can also be used of believers. For example, 10.17, who wants to do that one? And some and do 19. Somebody else get 18? Who's got it? Okay. Ellen? 10.17 first. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Okay, hand you over to the courts. Jesus warning the disciples. Same idea. Handing over to authorities for, uh, in this case, for a judicial decision. You got the other one too, Jim? But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. Okay, that when they hand you over, then, you know, God is sovereign over that situation. Ellen? 1834. Okay, that's in a parable. But notice, similar context, handing over to jailers in order to be imprisoned in this case. Okay? So, 
I think in this context, and if you read the parallel passages in Mark's account, it talks about the courts, the synagogues, in somewhat of a legal context as well. So what he's talking about, when he's talking about this persecution, they are going to be persecuted, betrayed. In fact, the same word is used in verse uh, 10, a betrayal, where people are going to turn one another into the authorities, and the authorities are going to persecute them because it's going to probably be against the law to be a, a believer. And this is during that period of time. It's going to be a time of very severe testing. And because of that, as I said, there are these different positions related to the tribulation and believers. There's at least five of them. These five different positions that are floating out there. Some of them have gone by the wayside. Some of them are pretty prominent today. And some of them are real common in the church. Number one. There's what's called a post, and they all relate to the church and the rapture. When does the rapture take place? The rapture being when does God take believers out of the world in that event that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 in some detail there. It's the most detailed passage. Jesus describes the same thing in the upper room discourse, by the way. And then Paul gives a little more detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's what's called a post-tribulation rapture. What does that mean? After the tribulation. Very good. You read the slide. After the tribulation. <laughs> That's right. You can read. If you want it on a timeline, here's our seven, seven years, seven, one week of, of seven years. So, Post-tribulationism sees a rapture after because they have this idea that the church has to go through tribulation. And I'm going to address that. But if that's the case, then it's kind of just uh, up and down, you know, because there's also clear passages that speak. In fact, we're going to see it in the Olivet Discourse. You see it in Revelation 19. Believers return when Jesus returns to earth. So you have a quick rapture, and then you have a simultaneous return. That's post-tribulationism. And we could spend a lot of detail. I just want you to be aware of these. There's also mid-tribulation. Now, the rest of you can figure out when the rapture is pictured in that viewpoint, right? It's in the middle, so it looks like this. You want to sketch it. On a timeline, you have a rapture in the middle. And remember, the middle is very, very important. Very specific in the book of Revelation. And I think Jesus pinpoints it, and I think verse 15 pinpoints it and ties it to what Daniel says. Daniel pinpoints it in the middle. And then uh, after half of the tribulation, then we return with Christ when he returns. That's mid-tribulationism. Got it? There's also what's called a pre-wrath. This is more recent, and I think this one has gone by the wayside. A scholar by the name of Rosenthal, I believe, came up with this idea. Pretty complex. He wrote a whole book on it. It's got a lot of weaknesses in it, and I think as a result, it never, never really caught fire. But in case you read the book, the book is still out there. He basically has this complex... Outline here, you see four, four seal judgments in the first part. Now, I'd agree with that. 
pretty much. And then he sees 5 and 6 as tribulation wrath. In other words, wrath that comes from man. He makes a distinction between persecution and that that is as a result of men pouring wrath out on other men, and particularly believers during that period of time. And then he divides that period, uh, the second three and a half, and he sees a rapture there. But Christ returns, takes his church, and then he sees, this is why it's called pre-wrath, because after that it's the wrath of God. And what he's trying to get away from is the First Thessalonians, where it talks about believers not experiencing the wrath of God. So he makes that distinction. Well, it gets real complicated, and and I think there's a lot of problems with it anyway. Um, and he falls into the same trap as those that are mid and post-trip. Then there's another one. It's called a partial rapture, where there's multiple raptures during this period of time. There's one at the beginning. There's several throughout. And in this case, there's even one uh, very late, even after the Millennial Kingdom. So this is the way you sketch that one. Where you have multiple raptures, so I'll put it over on the top there, and then you have the, the return over here just before the Millennial Kingdom. Now what's at issue here is not the timing. The point that they make is that only those that are ready to be raptured, those that are in fellowship, those that are walking with the Lord are raptured initially. And then as these judgments come and people begin to say, well, I better get ready, when they're ready, then they are taken up. So there aren't any specific times, it's just these raptures here and there. You know, you're sitting in some uh, theater or something and somebody just, poof, they're gone. <laughs> so it's the nature of the believer is the basis. And the basis is on their spiritual condition, not the specific time frame. So the time frame is not at issue in uh, that partial rapture viewpoint. Now I think the one that is most biblical and has the most support, and I've been kind of talking about it quite a bit in relevant discourse, is called pre-tribulation rapture, where the rapture takes place before. And part of the reason for, or the major reason for that, is this period of time is so specific in the Old Testament it deals with the nation of Israel. It does not deal with the church. So I see the church as something as a parenthetical period in God's plan, in God's world history, that has a beginning and an end. What is the beginning of the church? Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, very specific. And the end would be the rapture. And then once that era or that age when God has completed his plan for the church on earth I mean we have an eternal part but on earth then he's going to de devote his efforts to bringing about all of the fulfillments of the passages that deal with the nation of Israel and it's Daniel's 70th week and I don't want to argue about it <laughs> just want to explain to you why I'm right <laughs> All right, so pre-tribulation, you have the rapture before the seven years. There might even be a gap. There might be a short period of time before the 70th week begins. The 70th week has a very specific beginning. It's described in Daniel. Jim. So, 
people think that that gap is maybe as long as seven years. It's all speculation. Even if there's a gap, that's speculation as well. Alright? Yeah, I don't know where they get seven years. Because there's, there's no prophecy. In fact, by the way, eschatology is, what did I say? Jewish. The church just fits in, but it fits into a Jewish calendar. And when I say eschatology is Jewish, what I mean all of the time frames that are given in the Old Testament, all of the chronology that's given is given with respect to Israel, not the church. The church does not have a time frame. In fact, the church is kind of secondary when it comes to Bible prophecy. And that's another reason why church is not involved there. Okay, so we have the rapture, and then we have the return at the end of the tribulation. And some support... All of the other approaches have to depart from a literal interpretation. And if you take every passage in the grammatic, uh, this is short for grammatical, historical, contextual, in other words, proper hermeneutics, consistent hermeneutics, the premillennial view just kind of, or pre-tribulation, premillennial view just kind of falls into place. So hermeneutically, it satisfies the hermeneutics. And very importantly, it maintains a distinction between Israel and the church. I think this is a clear distinction that lots of scriptures make. This is another error that a lot of theologians make. In fact, covenant theology mixes the two, a whole theological system. Much of Protestantism is covenant theology. But uh, we are, if you're you don't want to argue with me. <laughs> we are what we would call dispensational. In other words, God dealing separately with Israel than the church. Israel set aside right now, but not abandoned. So it maintains that distinction. It's Daniel's 70th week, as I've been saying throughout. And the chronologies of all of the major passages, including the Olivet Discourse. We're going to see that. As we continue. In fact, we've already seen some of that. So it supports it. So here's the five views. Now, one of the problems is, well, where do these believers come from, Jim? Uh, I'm not going to answer your question. Okay, yeah, I, I realize that. Well, at the time of the Reformation, That's correct. Yeah, a lot of these issues have arisen since the Reformation. The reformers had their hands full, I could say. We cut them a little slack. They had their hands full trying to get the doctrine of salvation correct, or soteriology. So the reformers did a great job of bringing the overall church, if you will, back to a proper biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And they did not devote themselves to eschatology. Yes, so they accepted what was prevalent in that time frame, the amillennial, which denies the a literal millennial kingdom on earth. And and by the way, most amillennialists are either post-tribulational or they're mid-tribulational, and there's some that are even partial rapture views. So when did the pre-tribulation theory first come? With Jesus. 
Actually, there are church fathers that hinted at this. It's not clear. But much of this came about, I would say, late 1800s. In fact, a lot of study in eschatology came about in that time frame and, and since then. But you do see the, the beginnings of all this amongst the church fathers. And then a lot of this was lost. What happened, historically, since you asked the question, when Jesus didn't come back, in the first century, I can show you passages where it indicates that Paul almost thought that he would see the rapture. In fact, First uh, and Second Thessalonians. The early church anticipated the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think John the Apostle probably anticipated perhaps seeing some of the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. So the early church anticipated a what we would call a quick rather than a soon return of the Lord. When the Lord did not return after hundreds of years, and I can't remember, when what are the dates for Augustine, you historians? I think it's a little later than that, but around that time frame, people began to think, well, maybe we didn't understand the scriptures correctly. And beginning with Augustine, he was one of the first to introduce this amillennial idea. Well, maybe the millennial is now, and maybe we just didn't realize it. And maybe there's not going to be a literal millennial kingdom in the future. Maybe we're living it now. And amillennialism grew out of that. And then postmillennialism grew out from it. And then later on, people went back and said, well, it just doesn't fit a literal interpretation. And premillennialism is correct. The early church was correct. It was just that when Jesus said, uh, soon he was implying or meaning imminent. Could happen at any time. He wasn't pinpointing it. Okay, one of the objections to the pre-tribulation viewpoint, the criticism is that we're just trying to escape tribulation. And the Bible is full of passages. In fact, uh, we'll look up some of these, but one of them that I don't have up there is... What's the passage? What is it? First Timothy. Anyone that uh, desires to live godly will, in fact, suffer. All right? Persecution is the pattern. So the accusation is, well, believers want an early rapture so they don't see persecution during this period of time. Well, the answer is... There always is persecution, but here, this is a very specific, just like the other things that we've been talking about. This is a specific persecution. But, when it comes to persecution, we should anticipate it at any time. And there's many passages that speak of the church having to suffer and us going through persecution. I'll get to those passages in a moment, when we get to the specific word. But let me answer the question. Where do these believers that are in Matthew's gospel and also in prophetic scriptures, where do they come from? I'm going to give you a little bit of, this is my reconstruction, if you will, of some chronology that we have in the book of Revelation. From, for example, the book of Revelation, we have two witnesses to describe. Does anybody know where those are, the two witnesses? 
Jerusalem. Two witnesses in Jerusalem. The time frame is very specific. Somebody look up 11. Revelation 11. Who's got it? Real quick. It's very specific time frame. Revelation 11. Connie, go for it. The court has been given over to the Gentiles. 42 months is how many? Three and a half years. Keep reading. 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Now it makes sense that what is described there is at the very beginning of this period of time. They will prophesy for that period of time because later on they're going to be killed in the middle. So we have a precise dating. I think what we have at the very beginning of the seven year period of time, God is now devoting things to the nation of Israel. He raises up to Jewish prophets. And if you read that chapter... Those two prophets appear to be Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses. I think as they prophesy, somebody skipped to chapter 7 in the book of Revelation. Who wants to start with it? Okay, Jenny. In chapter 7, we have, I think, the first response of the preaching of these two witnesses. You want to start in verse 1? After this, I saw four angelic creatures holding back judgment. In other words, judgment is not, not coming yet until what? Keep reading. In other words, angelic creatures are going to be involved in executing that judgment that God sends. Keep reading. Until a certain group is sealed. In other words, judgments are not going to come until they are sealed. That is also at the very beginning. And it doesn't say so, but I take it that as a result of the preaching of the two witnesses, we have how many? Read that. Okay, from the tribes of Israel, and if that's not specific enough, if she kept on reading, 12,000 from each tribe. They're Jewish. The first believers of this period of time are Jewish people that recognize that Jesus is, or was, in fact, the Messiah, and is the Messiah that is to yet to come. I take them to be the first responders, if you will, to the gospel after the preaching of the two witnesses. Now, if you keep on reading, also in that passage, we have a reference to others, particularly verse 9. We'll read that one later. Why don't you keep your finger there, and I'll have you read verse 9 a little later. That's where a whole group, 144,000. Now, other passages seem to indicate that the 144,000, now they are sealed because they have a special ministry. We'll talk about them later as well, not today. I believe they're evangelists, 144,000 Billy Grahams sent out into the world. And there's going to be a massive conversion. But because of the terribleness of that time, many of them will die. And that's 7-9 that we'll get to a little later. Maybe next week, who knows. 
Then they will deliver you to tribulation. The world is going to be antagonistic, first of all, to Jewish converts to Jesus Christ. Many of them are going to die during this period of time. That's what we have in, in uh, the Olivet Discourse. And will kill you. Martyrs. Make sense? And you'll be hated. And notice, it's not first century. By all who? Plural. Not just the Roman Empire. All nations. He's talking about a period of time beyond the first century. Because of my name. In other words, because you have stood up and claim that Jesus is Messiah. And during that time, there's going to be another Messiah that the world uh, looks to. He's anti-Christ. And anti-Christ is going to affect the elimination of those rival rivals to his dominion. So, there's going to be trouble in general. The word tribulation it has the idea of trouble in general, affliction, dis- distress, anguish. In fact, we're going to have to stop after we read some of these passages. Somebody read 1621 real quick before we shut down here. Somebody prefer, okay, you got it. Somebody prefer 1 Corinthians 728, who wants it? All right, you got it. These are just general affliction, distress, anguish. One of them deals with uh, 1621. Read that one. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because of the anguish. Same Greek words we have in in this passage. So the anguish of uh, childbirth. Similar analogy as to what we have here. Got that one? Craig, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 28. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. Trouble in the flesh. Marriage, two sinners joined together, what do you got? (laughs) Trouble. (laughs) Most of you can identify with that. That's the same word as we have here. But in some context, it refers to not just common trouble, not just marriage, not just other, but it refers to tribulation or persecution, and that's how it's used in this context. Now, we can expect persecution anytime. Here's the verses I was referring to. Somebody got Romans 5.3. Real quick, somebody. Go ahead, Connie, and somebody get 12.12, another passage. All right, Romans. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Very good. Tribulation or persecution has byproducts. But it's not just ordinary affliction or distress or anguish. It's a suffering for the name of Christ. And who just got the other one? Uh, Jim, you got 1212. Okay, tribulation. Same word. Same Greek word. This, in chapter 24, it occurs again in 21, and it occurs in 29. And I think we have a sequence here. In the first part, there's going to be tribulation of believers. And that tribulation is going to result in martyrdom. In verse 21, he's talking, I think, about the next three and a half years. He calls that great tribulation. It's going to intensify. 
And then verse 29, which we'll get to eventually, unless the Lord returns. Verse 29 says, after the tribulation of those days, then we have the second coming. That's after a seven-year period of time. And martyrdom, that's probably a good place to stop. It's going to include martyrdom, that's verse 9. And we've run out of time, I want to get further, but that's okay, we'll just pick up next week. Closing thought. The Bible is clear that we should uh, anticipate and in fact be prepared for persecution. Point I'm making, Matthew 24 doesn't talk about that general persecution, it's talking about a specific persecution. So we should be prepared for persecution during the church age that's different from that in the midst of that seven-year period of time. Who wants to close for us? You got it? Father, thank you for the great privilege of studying your word for this hope that you've given us, the words that you gave to your servants. Enjoy now and study. We ask that you will give us strength in this week we might go out, your servants as your witnesses. Amen.